Welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information contained in this podcast is general in nature. It doesn't take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. All right. So, Shani, we'll do another plug for our conference. Mm-hmm. We did it last time. We've had a lot of people put their name on the wait list. So, once again, we are having a conference October 13th. Shani and I are working through the agenda, but I do think it's going to be an interesting way to approach the conference. So we are really going to walk through everything you need to put together a portfolio and pick investments, including talking to a lot of experts around how to invest during times like this and everything that's going on. So I don't know. I'm excited for it, Shani. So yeah, I'm really excited for it too. And we'll have a little bit of a investing compass stand as well. So you can say hello to us. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, (laughs) put your name on the waiting list. That will get you the lowest price ticket to the conference. And uh, we'll share more details as we start to finalize the agenda. But we've got some good speakers so far. We can't talk about them yet. But Shani's done a very nice job of, uh, of getting us some, some good speakers. So yeah, hopefully you can join us. Yeah, I mean, I had to actually write them out and get you to post them for me, Mark, for some of the speakers. So <laughs> yes, we, that was interesting. We, yes, we asked one speaker via the mail. So we're still waiting to hear back on him. But he would be a very good one. Personally, that's one I'm most excited for if we do get him, but we will see. I know. I know. Anyway, <laughs> enough, enough just talking about, uh, talking about people. It's a mysterious person. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So why don't, we, why don't we get started with today's episode? So, Shani, for today's episode, we, we have tried to stop doing these, but we are going to make it a two-parter. We're going to release them both on the same day. And we do think there's sort of a natural breaking point in here. Um, and yeah, it'll just be two shorter episodes for people. Sounds Does that good. sound fair? Yeah, sounds fair. Okay, so today we're going to explore something that we may be hearing a lot more during July and during August, and that's related to companies that are starting to report results. And we're going to do this because we know there's a lot of anxiety out there, and we hope that these episodes can help people take a step back and explore some of the things that may be in the news. And the reason we want to do this is because it will help investors make sense of all the headlines and stay rational. And I don't compliment Mark often on this podcast, but I think you put it pretty nicely in an email you sent out to our database last week. You talked about rationality and how during times like this, it's important to try and make rational decisions in the face of a market environment, which can make that really difficult. Yeah. Well, thank you, Shani. It's always nice to to have a compliment. I like how you said on here. I do compliment you quite often. Okay. Okay. Well, (laughs) anyway, thank you for that, Shani. But yeah, humans aren't rational and we all make decisions that are driven by our emotions. And in a period like this, there are certainly heightened emotions, which means that we make less rational decisions than we normally would. And we can actually quantify this. Uh, So we talked about our Mind the Gap study that shows that the average investor gets a lower return than the average fund or ETF. And that's because of poor timing of buy and sell decisions. And that comes from chasing strong performance and running away from poor performance. Well, the other thing that the study finds is that when we look at more volatile asset classes, the gap is bigger. And when we look at significant bear markets, the gap is also bigger than a rising market. And if we divide up equity funds and ETFs into five quintiles, by volatility. And then we compare the 20% of funds and ETFs that are most volatile with the 20% that are least volatile, we can see the difference in the gap is almost 10 times as large. 
So it varies from an annual gap of negative 0.19%. And then if we go look at the most volatile quintile, it is negative 1.86%. So a big difference. Yeah, that is huge and shows that the more volatility we see, the less rational we are. So as we strive to be as rational as possible in order to limit mistakes, we need to be very wary of this environment. And since our last market update on May 15th, we've seen further losses of 10% in the US and 7.8% in Australia. So let's take a temperature check of where we are. So the overall market is still not cheap. So we're sitting at a CAPE ratio or cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio in the US of around 28.91. I say around and then I give a very exact (laughs) number. So that compares to an average monthly CAPE ratio of 26.91 since 2000. I know we've said this a lot, but it's important to keep reiterating valuation levels because a rational investor needs to base decisions on facts. And what we've seen so far this year is investors have re-examined valuation levels in light of higher interest rates. And this makes sense from a mathematical perspective as higher discount rates mean the value of future cash flows are worth less and therefore companies are worth less. But it also makes sense from a psychological perspective. Central bankers were projecting interest rates to stay at record lows for years and those low interest rates were what many investors used to justify valuation levels that were the highest they've been in history. And we've talked a lot on here about two different things. We've talked about how markets are forward-looking and how the market performs is often not how things go on an absolute basis, but how they go compared to expectations. Well, we've seen collective expectations about interest rates and inflation change significantly as things have continued to go worse than expected. Which means when we start to assess how the market will do going forward, we need to look at where expectations are right now. Well, we've been talking a lot about valuation levels, but let's get our investor hats on. Uh, We are buying companies and we can talk as much as we want about how we value future cash flows, but those future cash flows matter as well. Earnings matter and how companies perform matter. And if you listen to a lot of market uh, commentators these days, all you hear about is central banks and interest rates and inflation. That, of course, makes sense because the direction of interest rates and the level of inflation matters. But as investors, instead of sitting around and predicting what central bankers are going to do, let's just instead pretend we're executives at companies, because after all, we are all owners of companies as investors. And the reason we've all become obsessed with central banks is because since the GFC, central banks have had a huge influence on markets by keeping interest rates artificially low, which has supported high asset prices on shares, on houses, and on bonds. And the reason they got away with this is because it didn't cause inflation. And it's safe to say now the cat is out of the bag. So now central banks aren't coming to rescue us. There is no white knight. And that means that we need to go back to the basics as investors and focus on fundamentals. And where the market goes from here will be influenced, of course, by how inflation goes and how high interest rates go up to combat it. But we need to start looking at the real economy and earnings. So that is what we'll explore today. And this is timely since we've entered earnings season in the US and we'll be there next month in Australia. All right. So let's start with expectations. According to FactSet, analysts expect US earnings growth of 4.8% for Q2 2022, 10.6% for Q3 2022, and 10.1% for Q4 2022. For the full year of 2022, they're predicting earnings growth of 10.1%. And in 2023, up another 9%. So obviously, these overall estimates are made up of the estimates of 500 different companies. But what do we think of these numbers overall? 
Yeah, I mean, 10.1% growth for the year sounds like a lot to me. But also, we need to be aware as investors that the 10.1% growth is nominal, which means we aren't considering inflation. Now, we don't know what inflation will be for the year, but the last monthly reading we have from the U.S. is an annualized level of 8.5% in May. So when we look at real earnings growth, that's when we include inflation, that number doesn't look so good. But I still don't think we'll hit it because we need to remember that it's an incredibly difficult environment to run a business. Not to mention the other issues that often accompany inflation, like difficulty finding workers, which we are certainly seeing now, and then additional issues around supply chains and steps backwards with globalization. All right. So we have our business hats on, Shani. Mm-hmm. Right? So we're taking off so, our investor hats and we're putting on exactly. our business hats. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's explore the basics of running a business and reflect a little bit on the environment that these businesses have been operating in over the past couple decades. And we can start with inputs. So any business needs to produce a good or service to sell. So let's start here. Walk us through some examples. Well, if I'm a manufacturing company, one of the most important things I can do to run my operations efficiently is manage my inventory levels to try and minimize them. And we've probably all heard of just-in-time manufacturing, but the concept here is pretty simple. So let's say I'm building a car. What used to happen is that I would have a warehouse full of car parts next to a factory. And when I wanted to start a new car on my assembly line, I would simply go into the warehouse and grab the parts that I need to build a car. And we're obviously taking a simplified approach, but the concept holds true. Somebody is responsible for keeping that warehouse filled because the last thing I want is for my workers to show up one day and not be able to build a car. And the last thing I want is for the factory that I've invested so much money in to just sit there and not be used. So I'm willing to wear that cost of having to pay for all these parts and have them just sit in a warehouse for a while before I use them because that's the most efficient thing to do at this time, right? And that's what I want to do, create a product and then sell it. So the cost of inventory may not be efficient, but it's better to pay that than to pay for an empty factory or pay a bunch of workers sitting around and doing nothing. And as we got better at transportation, at predicting demand and logistics, companies start minimizing the amount of goods sitting in that warehouse. And the very best of them got to the point where they were engaged in -in just-in-time manufacturing, that parts would arrive at a factory the day that they went into whatever was being produced. So essentially, there was no inventory. And not only that, but many of these raw materials or components were being shipped from lower-cost offshore locations. And all of this made companies incredibly efficient. And if we look at retailers, we know, or we will demonstrate, that retailers also became incredibly good at forecasting demand through advanced analytics. By analyzing reams of data from purchasing patterns and finding correlations with outside factors, such as the weather, the best retailers were able to ensure that individual stores held just enough inventory to support customer demand. And some of these predictive capabilities are pretty amazing. So are you ready for some good examples, Shani? I'm ready for you to wow me, Mark. All right. Well, first off, do you like berries, Shani? (laughs) I do like berries, Mark. Okay. Well, Walmart discovered that the ideal weather for berries was below 26 degrees with a low wind. So when there was a forecast for that weather, they increased display and digital ads for berries in those zip codes with that weather. And they were able to triple berry sales which they, of course, supported with more berry inventory. That is pretty wild. Yeah, I've got another one. 
So okay. when there is a hurricane <laughs> forecast to hit an area, they, of course, stock up on things like torches. But Walmart also realized that sales of strawberry Pop-Tarts increased by seven times before a hurricane hit. And they also saw that the top selling pre-hurricane item, which makes a lot more sense to me, was beer. <laughs> so they, of course, rushed increased supplies of strawberry Pop-Tarts and beer to stores in areas in the way of a hurricane. I mean, I do like Pop-Tarts, but I also like beer. So probably prefer that. But colorful stories aside, this is a really critical area for retailers because you don't want too much inventory and don't want too little inventory because both make you less efficient. And the last thing we'll talk about is workers. We've all heard about the demise of unions and that has rebalanced the power dynamic on an overall basis in favor of employers and not employees. As we've transitioned as a society to more of a service-oriented economy rather than a good economy, one of the biggest expenses in many organizations is employee wages. And it's safe to say employers have been winning. In Australia, we've seen a slowing of wage growth since March 2011, and also over the long term. So wage growth is measured by the wage price index was 4% per year in the 2005 to 2009 period, and then 3% a year up until 2013. Since then, they've fallen to under 2.5% per annum and all the way down to less than 1.5% in 2021. This is, of course, a really good thing for companies, not such a good thing for wage earners. And many people may be wondering the point of this little exploration of Pop-Tarts and manufacturing and wage growth. But the point is that the combination of all these factors and others like corporate tax cuts have been really beneficial to companies and therefore the owners of those companies, shareholders. And I think it's underappreciated how beneficial this has been. We look at the period between the year 2000 and 2011, the margin, so that's the difference between the revenue or how much a company sells and the profit or how much they make, the margin on the S&P 500 was 6.2%. Over the past decade, it accelerated to 13.4% on the S&P 500. So a lot of the earnings growth that we've seen has actually been margin expansion. The environment we've been in, which since the early 80s has been lower taxes, less bargaining power from workers, increased globalization, and increased efficiency through automation and other technology advances, so the computer, the internet, data, etc., all of this has been amazing for companies. And whether you agree with what has happened or not, we have to acknowledge that when we look at share of the overall economic pie, which is represented by GDP, the winner has been companies and therefore shareholders. If we look at the US and go back to 1947, we can see the percentage of GDP that is made up of corporate profits. This percentage had never been higher than 9% until 2010. In 2021, it reached 11%. That means that corporations, as opposed to, say, workers or the government through taxes, are taking a bigger piece of the pie. Morningstar Investor is built for investors by investors. It provides independent research and data on over 40,000 securities, tools to build and maintain an investment portfolio, and investor education resources to support you, regardless of where you are in your investing journey. Explore opportunities with our monthly global best ideas. Explore our ETF model portfolios, plan better with two years of dividend forecasts for ASX-listed stocks, and stay informed with independent thought leadership. We've built tools to help you construct, monitor, and maintain your portfolio, including our Portfolio Manager, 
integrated with one of Australia's leading portfolio tracking tools, ShareSight. Morningstar has been empowering investor success for over 35 years. We're passionate about your outcomes and are here every step of the way as you achieve them. Take out a free four-week trial to access our resources. Find the details in the episode notes. So we've talked a little about what is good to businesses and how the prevailing economic environment benefited companies through higher margins by taking more of the overall economic pie. But now we need to talk about what has happened recently. And each of the areas we talked about, we've seen some profound impacts since we've emerged from COVID. So while it's all well and good to talk about how the price of oil is up and we have inflation, we also need to look at what's happening with businesses. So why don't we start with manufacturing and what's going on there, Mark? Well, a lot of the efficiency in manufacturing has gone out the window. Supply chains have been broken by COVID. We've got ships stacking up in ports. We've had lockdowns in China. We've had shortages of parts. We've had trade wars increasing tariffs, and we've had Russia cut off completely from the global financial system. All of this means either holding more inventory for companies or just idleness of manufacturing facilities. A perfect example of this is GM, but it applies to a lot of other automakers and manufacturers as well. GM just issued guidance that it had parked 95,000 unfinished vehicles because they're missing semiconductors. And this is a nightmare for a business. They've gone out there and sourced all the raw materials for a car, built most of them, but they're missing a key component. So they can't actually sell them. And that's not a very good outcome. And we've even seen this at Tesla, where they have really ambitious plans to ramp up production, as we discussed in our Tesla episode. But they actually delivered less cars in the second quarter. Now, they managed to build 254,000 cars compared with 310,000 in the first quarter. So a lot of this is because of the lockdown in Shanghai, but still amazing that things went backwards. When we look at retailers, we see them running into issues related to inventory as well. Inflation has profoundly shifted buying patterns. In early June, we heard from Target in the US when they cut their profit forecast for the second time in less than a month. The reason for this drop is that they said the second quarter operating margin would be around 2% compared to 5.3% in the first quarter. And the reason for this large drop in margin was to clear excess inventory by marking down prices. They claim this excess inventory was built up because of shifting consumer behavior. And we've heard the same thing from Walmart. Both companies are having a difficult time passing on higher fuel, freight, and labor prices to consumers. Both companies are contending with consumers stung by high prices and whose buying patterns have changed since emerging from COVID lockdowns. And investors did not like these announcements and did not seem to agree that they would just be temporary issues. Target is down 38% for the year, and Walmart is down 14% for the year. The share price fell from $148 to $119 in the three days after their announcement. And finally, we have something we alluded to earlier, and that is the labor market. There are record levels of open jobs. There are 480,000 open positions in Australia, and that compares to 335,000 a year ago and 229,000 prior to COVID in 2020. Many businesses simply can't find the workers needed to fill positions, and this has given workers more power to demand higher salaries. And this is where we can talk a little bit about something that Philip Lowe, who of course heads up the RBA, said, and it made a lot of newsworthy headlines. And he said that workers should get pay rises starting with a three. And if they move to the four and five percent range, it would entrench inflation. But what he's saying is that workers should take wage increases below the rate of inflation. 
In other words, for the good of the economy, workers should have their real or inflation-adjusted wages go backwards. And a couple of things to point out here. First, he's asking workers to absorb inflation, but that isn't the only choice. Remember that another option is to let companies with record high profit margins absorb higher inflation by just making less money. A third option, of course, is that inflation keeps increasing through higher wages and then higher prices and then higher wages, the wage price spiral. But regardless of what Philip Lowe says, we need to acknowledge that many workers aren't really in the mood to not demand more money. They're seeing their inflation-adjusted standard of living drop, and they're likely covering for some of these 480,000 open positions. They're also very aware that they have the option of leaving and taking one of those 480,000 open jobs. And the point of all of this is to say that this is a really challenging environment to run a business. You're dealing with all sorts of challenges just to produce the goods and services you need to sell. You may have shortages of parts and you may be understaffed. You're probably being forced to carry extra inventory due to supply chain issues or issues forecasting demand. And everything costs more. Borrowing money is more expensive, labor is getting more expensive, commodities are more expensive, and consumers have less money to spend. So the point of all this is that to maintain these historically high margins is going to be really challenging for even the best-run companies. And perhaps they'll figure it out, and perhaps you'll not see a reversion to the mean in margins. I just don't think so. I think as we move into July in the US and August in Australia, we're going to start to see some earnings misses, especially when the expectations are so high. And those earnings misses are going to cause analysts to cut future estimates. Let's take a step back and look at a previous inflationary environment to see the impact on earnings. This sounds like you're going to give another one of your examples, mate. Yeah, you you done yet? Yeah. <laughs> Not quite. You know uh, that I love history as well, so I've come up with my own example. So, Mark, are we going back to the early 1850s to explore an inflationary environment caused by the discovery of gold in California and exasperated by railroad speculation? Well, you know, I'm I'm speechless, Sean, because we all know (laughs) that you do not love history. You're just being sarcastic. (laughs) But interestingly enough, you know, the gold rush drove a 30% increase in inflation between 1850 and 1855. But I was thinking of a little more, hopefully relevant example a bit later on, and that's the inflationary period between 1973 and 1982. So over that 10-year period, inflation went up an average of 8.75% a year. Now, if you look at earnings on the S&P 500, we can see that they increased over that period 6.79% a year. Now, something obvious should jump out at you. Inflation was higher than earnings growth. So over that time period, we had total real earnings drop. What that means in practical terms is that companies were not able to pass along cost cost increases coming from higher input prices. And the interesting thing is that in 1973, when inflation kicked off, we initially had real earnings growth, but after that, it stopped. In 1974 and 1975, real earnings went down. They started growing again when inflation fell off and then went negative again when it re-accelerated. And the lesson here is that companies can normally get away with raising prices, but after a while, inflation starts to change consumer behavior. Companies go back to the well for another price increase. Many consumers just revolt. So I think the longer this goes on, the bigger hit we will have to margins. And this makes sense. In many cases, the first round of price increases is just absorbed by consumers because they either don't notice it or think it's a one-time thing. But after a while, rising inflation is in the news and consumers have had enough time to realize that there is less in every paycheck. That's when they start making choices. 
Some will stick with your product. If you have a moat, the better you will do. But a lot of companies will suffer. If it's a brand name item, some companies might turn to a private label brand. Some people will delay the purchase of a consumer discretionary item like a car or a new fridge. And some people may just stop purchasing the product altogether. And we've seen this in Walmart's profit warning. Their CFO said that many shoppers had switched from brand named items to private label brands. And one example that was given is that there was a shift from buying gallon-sized milk to half-gallon-sized milk. So just demonstration that people are changing their behavior. So, and certainly cutting back in the milk example. So in Walmart's case, they are not passing on all the price increases to consumers, which of course eats into their margin. But what they are doing is they are pushing back on suppliers to eat some of those cost increases. And in their case, they have the leverage to do that. So this is a perfect example of how inflation is eating away at company margins. So what we're saying is that there is a lot going on. We have central banks fighting inflation and lots of speculation on how far they'll go. Will they push the economy into recession? Will they not go hard enough so inflation becomes endemic for years? These are all really important questions, and these will all have a big influence on where the market goes and what valuation levels investors are willing to pay for earnings. Remember, those valuation levels aren't cheap yet. They're just about average. But earnings will have a say here, too. We are investors, so that means we need to focus on the business. In this challenging environment, we're going to see bad companies get into trouble. Companies without competitive advantages don't have pricing power. So Walmart has a wide moat, which comes from their scale and brand. They can push back on suppliers, and those suppliers will listen to them because they are Walmart. But as companies all along the supply chain are fighting to maintain margin, there are going to be winners and there are going to be losers. And one thing that's important to remember is that moats and competitive advantages play out over the long term. There's going to be a lot of short-term noise while companies adjust to new and a more challenging operating environment. We are going to see great companies run into temporary problems, and it's likely they're going to be punished severely for that. And this is because investors are in a pretty pessimistic mood and they are trigger happy. We've seen this recently. Microsoft warned profits would fall due to a strong US dollar, and the shares fell close to 12% in the next week. So we could see some opportunities in individual shares in the next couple months if we have earnings misses. We could also see a set of earnings that makes investors more pessimistic and have some of these really strong forward earnings estimates starting to get cut. And this gets back again to how you value a share. We've seen that discount rate go up, which makes future cash flows worth less. But those future cash flow estimates could also go down. So here we set with some pretty optimistic scenarios around earnings growth. We've got recession risk based on the fact that inflation has still not moderated and central banks are committed to bringing it under control. And we have average valuation rates. But on the plus side, so that's a little, you know, doom and gloom, Shani. But on the plus (laughs) side, we've got a really pessimistic set of investors. So investors are gloomier about the world economy than they have been for nearly three decades, according to a survey of fund managers by Bank of America. And these low expectations mean that if we do start getting anything better than expected, not necessarily positive, but just less negative than they thought, we could see a rally. All right. So we tried to set the stage. That's the end of the first part. We tried to set the stage a little bit around what investors should look out for over the next couple months. The next episode, which we've released at the same time, we're going to look at what investors can actually do. So we will get right into that one, Shani. 
Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.